Okay, today we'll find ourselves in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I know you're wondering, how many sermons does it take to get to John chapter 6? That's like another famous old question people ask of a similar nature. But uh, that, that's very simply this, uh, apparently 15 it takes to get to John chapter 6. And so this is number 15 in the series, and I invite you to go back if you missed any to fill it in because we're learning about the, the attributes of Jesus as he's described in John's gospel, the various titles that he takes on, the things that he claims, the things he compares himself to, and we're looking at those images and we're seeing a great deal about Jesus. Last time we started chapter six and it was called the true bread from heaven and today's is called the true bread from heaven part two. And last time we saw that Jesus constantly presents himself as the essential and unfailing giver of life. So by introducing him as the Logos in chapter one, John begins this kind of theme that runs through that he is indeed the giver of life. We'll see later he calls himself the resurrection and the life. And, and in speaking of being the true bread from heaven, he is speaking of being the one and only one that can give eternal life. And secondarily, what we learned last time is that chapter six is really about kind of the filtering out, the sifting out of people, because he begins some very difficult teaching. He begins speaking in metaphor, and a lot of people struggle with it. They dispute. Many of them turn away from him. And that's also going to be uh, an important theme this time as we look uh, at some more important truths about him bringing the true bread from heaven. Uh, he have elevated himself above Moses. He said, Moses gave manna, but I am the true bread from heaven. He calls, says twice in the passage, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am in a provocative kind of way that recalls Exodus 3.14. So he is making no bones about it that he is from heaven, that he is divine. And they dispute among themselves about this because they're like, isn't this Jesus that we know? And indeed, they don't apparently understand yet. So many turn away, but what we're going to see is that when his teaching is hard, that's an invitation to draw near. And as we look at the last half of the chapter, we're going to start in verse 35. We're going to read all the way down through 71. And we're going to learn this today, that without fail, it's really two things we're going to learn today. Without fail, all whom the Father gives to the Son will be raised up. But some who do not truly believe will be among the disciples. And so what we're going to do is uh, read along as we go through the passage, observe the certainty of Jesus' mission to raise up all those that are given by the Father, all those that truly believe. But right alongside this statement, most who appear to believe fall away from Jesus at the difficulty of his teaching. So let's hit the uh, scriptures. That's the best place for us to go. We'll start in John chapter 6, verse 35, and here's what it says there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard me and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they die. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much today for Jesus Christ. We thank you for this beautiful chapter in his wonderful Gospel of John. We pray this day that you'll make its meaning plain to us, that you'll send us out with balanced understanding, and that, Lord, you will glorify yourself by the improvement of your people and drawing them near to you, and, and you'll be glorified in their conversion and their acceptance of all that you have to give to them this day. We pray, Lord, this day that we will all be subject to the text to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so there we have his hard teaching. Teaching so hard that many turned away and misunderstood. And I think the misunderstanding, some of the misunderstanding is very obvious. They took him literally about the flesh and the blood thing. But what Jesus was doing was he was employing an extended metaphor. He was employing an extended metaphor. And the, the important thing about this extended metaphor that we need to see is Jesus compares himself to the life-giving manna that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness. And you can find out about that in Exodus chapter 16. It's mentioned several times in the book of Numbers. The point of contrast that Jesus brings up, so he compares himself to it and says, I'm like that. But then he brings up a point of contrast in which he points out, in this way, I'm not like it. And the point of contrast is that the life Jesus gives is permanent. He calls it eternal life. Whereas the Israelites that ate the manna eventually died. This is why he calls himself the true bread. And John uh, calls him that. And that's why he brings this out in this passage. That he was the living bread that came down from heaven. The true bread from heaven, according to 632. So only by eating manna. So you take yourself back to the situation that he speaks of in the wilderness. And it's only by eating manna that the Israelites survived. 
manna wasn't on the menu, it was the menu. And there's even a passage that speaks of the different ways in which they would try to prepare it. Nevertheless, they got tired of it, as anyone would, the same thing day after day. But nevertheless, it kept them alive. It was a miraculous gift of God for the Israelites to live. And Jesus compares himself to that. And he says, that's what I am, but I am the true bread. I am the living bread, and my life's eternal in contrast to that life, which was temporary. So since this is clearly a metaphor that he is drawing from the manna, Jesus is obviously not speaking of literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This passage has been used to support the false idea of transubstantiation, that when believers gather and the bread and the, and the wine are blessed by the priest, that it actually turns into the literal body and blood of Christ. And you might say, that's some really wild teaching. I didn't know anybody believed that. That is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and other denominations, a few other denominations. And so that is based upon this, but this entire passage is an extended metaphor. So what they've done is they've taken a metaphor Jesus was using, and they've taken it literally, just as the people did in the passage, who were obviously in error. And so it's interesting, they repeat the error that of the very same people that are in John chapter 6. So what does he mean then by eating and drinking? Well, let's call into mind this. Remember, he's speaking about the thing they received in the wilderness, the manna. Well, what else did they receive in the wilderness after they were brought out of Egypt? And in the wilderness, yeah, they received the manna. They received quail occasionally to feed the people. But they received something much more important that was also life-giving. That was the law. They received the law, and part of that law had, had concerns in it, had rules in it about what they could eat. And the instruction regarding what they could eat said you dare not eat something unclean, and it lists the things that were unclean. And one in particular, uh, across the board, it was never appropriate to eat something with the blood in it. So here's Jesus, and he says, in order to have any part of me and to have this eternal life, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Because that which goes in through the mouth is wholeheartedly accepted by the individual. Now we know toddlers, they're not real discerning. They put all kinds of things in their mouth, right? You never know what they're going to find them eating. Now I remember when I was, I was uh, very young, I had a friend who was in the habit of eating lint off the floor. He'd go and find a little piece of lint, he'd eat it. It's like, that's, that's a little strange. I was older than him, so I could discern that was a little strange. But they're not as discriminating. But when we get older, we're, we have our standards, you know. It can't have been on the floor for more than five seconds. Some people refuse to eat certain things. I'm from the north. I'm, I'm culturally predisposed to avoid grits. And, and my theory is there's no, there's no person in the world who likes grits, and, and everybody argues with me on that. I say, I, I love grits. I'm like, what do you put on them? They're like, well, butter and sugar or whatever it is they put on their grits. They like butter and sugar. I like butter and sugar too. Do I like corn? I don't know. I love butter and salt and pepper. I don't really know if I like corn. But Jesus' point, you see his point, is like eating my flesh, drinking my blood. That means you accept him so unconditionally as you would accept something that you would take into your very own body. And you accept him as that which gives you life as we accept food into ourselves and it gives us life. And it's interesting. That this wholehearted acceptance, this eating and drinking, it's seen in this very passage. It's seen in those who don't leave him after such hard teaching. Because at the, by the end of the chapter, there's the 12. He's like, where are you going? They're like, no one else has words of life. Simon's speaking up for the group, as he often does. 
Where did all the others go? They didn't wholeheartedly accept him, did they? They disputed with what he said. They grumbled about what he said. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing up this extended metaphor, and that's the way we understand the chapter. And what Jesus then is pointing out is, is a very important truth, that what he is giving is he is giving unfailing salvation. Unfailing salvation. And what we see is we see a very, a very clear progression revealed in this chapter as we assemble it together and look at it. This is the strongest passage, I believe, in the Gospels on what we would call the perseverance of the saints or eternal security or the very cringy title as some people say, once saved, always saved. And I avoid that title because that title depends upon how people define salvation. And I've had many people say to me, oh yeah, I was saved when I was eight years old, and they haven't been in the church since. Can that be someone who's wholeheartedly accepted Jesus, like manna into his mouth to keep him alive? No, it's someone who saw something, but then walked away. And so there's this unbroken progression revealed here, and I want to walk through some of these, these scriptures and, and show it to you here. And I want to show you, first of all, the Father draws people. In John 6, 44 and 45, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that, in a nutshell, is kind of the point of this, this unfailing salvation. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And this is profoundly important because Jesus came and he introduces what he calls the new covenant. And the new covenant, as described by Jeremiah, and it's not in your notes, but Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And you can also find bits and pieces about the new covenant in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. But this new covenant was superior to the old covenant. Why? Because the new one was going to work. See, the old one... God described as failing, not that God failed, not that his covenant failed, but that the people failed. So wouldn't it make sense that when God comes along to make a new covenant, he's going to fix whatever it is failed in the first one. And what he fixed was that the people failed. Because what he does in the new covenant is by his spirit, he causes someone to be born again. And by his spirit, he secures them into salvation forever. If that is not so, then the new covenant is really not much better than the old one. And I really want you to think about that. that Because the entire scriptures are, are hinged on this idea that there's this new covenant. That's why it's literally called in your Bibles. You see Old Testament? You know what the word testament means? That's covenant. You got the Old Covenant, and you got the New Covenant. And if indeed the New Covenant is not superior to the Old in the very matter in which the Old one failed, then it's hardly a better covenant. Now you can read the book of Hebrews if you really want to see how much better the new covenant is than the old. So that's one of the points. The Father draws the people. And he even reiterates this towards the end of the chapter in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Why? Because it, what he's teaching is hard. And this is why I told you it's, it's got to be granted by God. Because what I am bringing and what I am saying is too hard for mankind. So these people in this chapter, the, the people that the Father draws and gives to the Son, they look upon Jesus, verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, and they believe in Jesus and believes in him, should have eternal life. They also, they, they look upon Jesus, they believe Jesus when they look upon him, they also come follow Jesus. You know, this is the work of God that you may believe. Verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Say those that continue to follow him at the end of the chapter. In verse 45, it says, 
They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So you see the progression. The Father draws them, gives them to the Son. They look upon Jesus. They believe. They follow Jesus. And then Jesus gives them life. And this is reiterated all through the chapter, the point that he gives those ones life. Especially, look at verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So he says, I'm the living bread. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. And we understand elsewhere, this is speaking of atonement. This is speaking that he was a sacrifice for sins. That he took upon himself the punishment we were due for our sins. And that is how the salvation takes place. And Jesus then gives resurrection to all those. That he gives them life now. Eternal life beginning now. That's what a lot of people miss. They, they confuse eternal life and the resurrection. They think eternal life means that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. No, eternal life means you're never really going to die. This is the New Testament teaching on the issue. And then there's a resurrection as a bonus. And look how he puts it in verses 39 to 40 here. This is the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says it's a father's will that he should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So you see, he did a parallelism there. You know, in the first verse here, in 39, I should lose nothing of all that he's given. And then in verse 40, in parallel to that, is everyone who looks on the Son and believes. And they're going to, he's going to give them eternal life and raise them up on the last day. And this is the will of, of the Father. In this, Jesus will not fail. And how can I say that he will not fail? Because it's the will of the Father. And he says in verse 35, um, sorry, in verse 37 here, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of the Father is that he lose none. And all that he gives to the Son, the Son will not lose. What happens if the Son loses even just one of those that the Father gave him? Now let me phrase this question another way. Of all the people that the Father gives to the Son, that he draws to the Son this way, if Jesus should fail to bring one all the way to the resurrection of life, what would that say about Jesus? He failed. He failed. If one does, is not resurrected, even just one, then he failed to do the complete will of the Father. And how much of our theology hangs on Jesus being the sinless Son of God? Because the book of Hebrews makes the point that he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin so that he could be the unblemished and perfect final sacrifice for sin. And if he fails in the mission that God gave him to do, even in just one instance, then that would be a sin and we have wrecked our entire theology. Now this is very simple, but it's not easy. And it's not easy because if you taught this in a vacuum, this doctrine, like any of the good doctrines of the Bible, if you teach it all alone and you don't see it in fellowship with all the other good doctrines of the Bible, it could lead someone astray. It could lead someone to presume, well, since Jesus saves and can't take it back, once I have salvation, I can live however I want, and it won't matter because he cannot unsave me. It's the rules. And that's the bottom line of why many people will not teach this. But I feel like Paul in that I cannot keep any part of the whole counsel of God from people. So I'm going to bring it to you, no matter how hard it is to hear, but then I'm going to put it in the perspective of all the doctrines of God 
and give it balance so that it results in the right kind of living. Not the living that says, oh, Jesus paid it all, so I'm just going to go live like, like he did. I'm just going to go live. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. For I have eternal life, and it can't be taken from me. Well, this is why John chapter 6 is inspired and executed by John so beautifully the way it is. Because if the whole chapter is examined, just this chapter, you'll see in my notes 90% of my cross-references are just from this chapter. I haven't gone all over scripture to pick and choose how to support this truth. I've used just the one chapter to show the truth and to balance it with other great truths. If the whole chapter is examined, what you'll see is there's two things that we need to talk about in addition to this first great truth of unfailing salvation. And the next one is simply this, that there is fruit of faith. There is fruit of faith. Let me get to that for you. And the second thing we'll look at is false conversion. So those two truths are both taught in this chapter, and those two truths make the first palatable, that there can be unfailing salvation, but yet there's always this principle of the fruits of the faith, and there's always going to be a great principle of false conversion. If we examine the context of chapter 6, here's what we see here. We see Jesus described true believers as coming to him. He described it in in verses uh, 35, and I'm not going to put it up because we've run through all these already. You know, whoever believes in me shall never uh, hunger, never thirst, and they, they come to him. That's, that's defining, that's obvious from the whole passage. And they believe in him. Believing shows up in this passage five times. It's one of the key words. It's very important. Now remember what we saw earlier is that eating and drinking represent wholehearted acceptance. And the question is, well, how do I know that? Well, it's the food laws. Nothing unclean, particularly blood, particularly human flesh. And if that is true, then the passage clearly shows unbelievers challenging Jesus and turning away. Look at chapter 6, verse 30 here after the people had followed him, and the beginning of the chapter was simply this, he fed the people, and then he put the disciples in a boat, sent them back across the lake. They were all the way the, uh, the west side, of the, or the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and in a wilderness area there, he fed the people out there. He puts the disciples in a boat. They began to trek west across the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum. Jesus went on foot up to a high place. Then the water gets choppy, the, the, there's a storm that blows in, and Jesus comes walking to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And then, when they, and then all of a sudden, he calms the storm, and they find themselves at the other side. And then they're in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, these people show up because they look around, and they're like, hey, we saw the disciples leaving a boat, we, but Jesus wasn't with them, and we don't know where he went. And so they go back around the lake, some of them by boats, many of them the long way, looking for him. And they come and they find him. And look what they say in verse 30 here. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Well, these are the same people. The reason why I went through accounting what happened in the beginning of the chapter is these are the same people that saw him feed the multitude with a few loaves and fishes, and have leftovers. And in verse 36, look at this. I said to you, Jesus says to them, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus accusing them of not believing. And this is not wholehearted acceptance. See, these people had made some kind of a profession we're going to go see this Jesus. Oh yeah, I heard him teach, you know, over, over in Nazareth, or I heard him teach over in Nain or somewhere else. And, and he's really profound, but he's teaching out here today. Let's go out there and see him. So they go and they follow him and they follow him so far out in the wilderness that there's no way they're going to get dinner. If he were to send them away to go find dinner, well, they, 
It'd be after dinner time, by the time they found anything, or by the time they got home. So they sacrificed to follow Jesus. And they followed him out into the wilderness, and they followed him all the way back. And yet he looks at him and said, and they, they look at him and say, what are you going to show us that we'll believe? He looks at them and says, you don't believe. Do you see how they looked like disciples? Do you see how they sacrificed some to follow Jesus as long as it was convenient to them? But then he begins to teach on these difficult things and they suddenly turn away. See, the thing about true believers is even the tough times, they stick around. They have long-term evidence of being a believer. There are those who stick around through, through thick and thin, as people say, through the good times and the bad. And they bear the good fruits. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. He suggested that you'll know my followers because they'll, they'll act like me. <laughs> they'll be the light of the world. They'll be the salt of the earth. He defines it to the disciples in, in chapter 13 of John by saying, Here's how people are going to know you. You'll love one another. But would it bother you if I said even good fruits do not produce absolute certainty about our salvation with Jesus Christ? One of the most disturbing verses in the Bible are in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 24, where Jesus says near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Lord, Lord, that's to repeat that address is either emphatic or a symbol of familiarity. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, what's the will of the Father who's in heaven? That Jesus would raise up those that the Father gives him, right? That's part of it. There's a lot of other things too. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? You see the threefold repetition of in your name? In other words, they're emphatically saying, we did this for you. And these things they list are miraculous. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you notice there, he says, I never knew you. He doesn't say you did good for a little while, but no, didn't quite make it. They said, I never knew you. Even good fruits don't produce absolute certainty. And this is taught in chapter 6. I don't need to leave, leave chapter 6 to prove this to you. Because all these people, they show themselves to be false. They show the bad fruit of walking away from Jesus. You get to the end of the chapter, and who's left? Twelve. But one of them is a devil. But he's still there. And yet he's a devil. Well, this brings us to a very, very important point. That although... 100% of the people that the Father gives to the Son to give eternal life and to resurrect, Jesus will give eternal life and will resurrect, there's going to be a great number of people among those and with those that are not true converts. They're what we call false converts. The people, and let's just use John chapter 6 to illustrate this, the people followed him into the wilderness in verse 2. A large crowd was following him, and these are the ones he feeds. They had some degree of belief. Look at verse 15. After he feeds them miraculously, he perceives that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They believe enough to say, this guy ought to be king. This could be the Messiah. Let's put this guy in charge. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why? Why not accept it? Why not accept the kingship from them right at that moment? His time was not yet complete, and he knew the hearts of people. He didn't, uh, the scriptures say he didn't need people to tell him about people. He knew about people. 
And so they follow him back to Capernaum, as we accounted that, and Jesus accuses them of not believing. In verse 41, they grumble about him because he said, I am, in that emphatic way, the bread that came down from heaven. They disputed among themselves in verse 52. And in verse 66, finally, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, the chapter itself teaches this great truth that somebody can look like they're following Jesus, can do good works in accord with following Jesus, and yet not ultimately really be about Jesus. They were about having a king. They were about getting their tummies filled. They were about claiming for themselves a better life and getting the promotion and getting the good health and the blessings. And, and they were all about that kind of stuff, whatever it was. But they weren't really about Jesus. Along the way, could they have claimed to follow Jesus? Well, certainly. They were listening to what he was saying. They, they ate. They saw the miracle. They knew he was worthy of being king. They looked like the disciples. In fact, they're called in verse 66, disciples. But they were not. When the going got tough, they fell away. They were false converts. The other example in this same passage is Judas. And look how it's described by John here in verse 70 here. Jesus answered, did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He describes him as a devil. And in John's commentary is that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. In verse 64, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. He's speaking to the 12. There's some of you who don't believe. And this is why I said, no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Well, hold on to that. Are you ready for me to connect something really interesting to you? Um, look what Jesus says in verse 70 after he calls or before he calls Judas a devil. Did I not choose you? Did I, Jesus, not choose you? Can you name all the 12? I won't put you on the spot. It says to the 12, I chose you, but one of you is a devil. Well, okay, Jesus chose Judas, but Judas didn't come to believe yet. You know why? Because who is it that is granted to come to Jesus? The Father. Not the Son. It's the Father. The Father chooses. Yeah, the Son chose the twelve. But one of them didn't ultimately stay. Judas betrayed him. Judas fell, fell away in the last possible moment in the worst possible way. Many people will be found following Jesus for the wrong reasons. He calls them out on it. He says, you're following me because of the bread. I want to direct your attention, if, if you will, in your notes to Matthew chapter 13. We're not going to go there because there's too much there. It is also an emphatic chapter about this same topic. In the, in it, what it is, is it's the kingdom parables. Jesus starts to teach parables. And he teaches parables for the purpose of revealing it to some, but hiding it for others. Who's he revealing it to? His people. Who's he hiding it from? Those not his people. And he gives the parable of the sower, and there's four different kinds of soils described. The word of God goes out to all four. Three of the four have some kind of a reaction that looked like faith. Something happens. The seed begins to germinate. It begins to sprout. But two of those three wither away. They're false. Only one of the four was true. And then one of the very next parables, the wheat and the weeds. The wheat is sown into a good, good seed, is put into a a field and it is sown and it comes up but then the evil one comes and scatters weeds among them. and as it comes up it looks the same but when it gets old then they can see oh look there's somebody sowed you know weeds among the wheat what do we do and in the parable it says an enemy has done this 
Wait till the end, to the harvest. Don't pull them up now. Wait till the harvest, and we'll sort it out then. He gives another one almost identical to that one, in which it is a net that's cast into the sea, and it brings up upon the shore all kinds of fish, but then upon the shore, they're sorted out until the end. He says the kingdom's like a net. It's put into the sea. It brings all this stuff in with it. But it's going to have to be sorted out at the end. By what? By the angels. Jesus said very plainly, if I am raised up, I will draw all people unto myself. And people will point to that verse and say, see, everyone's drawn to Jesus. Well, according to John chapter 6, it's not all the same. Everyone is drawn to Jesus. But only some are granted to Jesus from the Father. We can't see who they are. We don't know if we are. And that's the catch. Hopefully, they reveal themselves out of works. But Jesus himself, the same one who said, if I'm raised up, I'll draw people unto myself, he also said, many are called, but few are chosen. That's a very interesting one. Even in his earthly ministry, look at John chapter 6, Jesus drew many, many people to himself. They fed 5,000, and we think that they were just counting the men. How many did Jesus appear to after his resurrection? The maximum number was 500 at a time, according to 1 Corinthians 15. From 5,000 to 500. And so he does. This is why the letters of the New Testament instruct us not to fall away. Why the letters encourage us to persevere to the end. And many do persevere, but many drop short of the confession of the apostles in John chapter 6. You realize many people say, yeah, Jesus, he was a good teacher. He was a perfect human. He was a prophet. He was an angel from heaven. But the 12 were confessing, now among them, you know, among them is Judas. But the 12 were at least confessing, we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And Peter speaks up again for them in another place where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But many people will not take Jesus wholeheartedly, will not take him flesh and blood. They'll say, oh, I think he was a good teacher. Oh, I think we should obey what he taught. Oh, I think he was a, a good human, a, a perfect human even, but he wasn't God. He wasn't this Christ. Those will sadly die in their sins because they haven't wholeheartedly accepted Jesus for everything he reveals himself to be. Now, there's some encouragements here, and I want to bring these to you because these are very important. And the, the first thing I want to do is remind you of what our point was today. And the point is simply this. Without fail, all whom the Father gives to the Son will be raised up. But some who do not truly believe will be among the disciples. The unbelieving ones who were following Jesus, they were among the disciples at the feeding. The unbelieving one among the twelve was with them at the end of the chapter. He's with them all the way, close to the very end. And you know what's really interesting? When you read John chapters 13, the end of chapter 13, all the way through verse 17, this is all the things he said to his disciples on the night that he was taken to be crucified. Right when he was arrested, he was crucified the next day. Those things are all said without Judas present. And you should read them as if they were. You should read them as if those are the instructions to true disciples. But today's point is this. All whom the, the Father gives a son will be raised up, but there will always be some who do not truly believe among the disciples. We have to be very careful not to suggest that a true believer can fall away because it suggests that Jesus failed to do the will of the Father. 
It implies that Jesus was unfaithful to the Father. It also draws into the question of God's own character and power. If one that God gave to the Son fell away, did, did the Father not see? Did he not know that that would happen? That draws in a, a very question about the character of God himself. Now, believing a true believer can be lost creates a, a whole storm of theological difficulties. You have to believe that the spirit who caused one to be born again must make that one dead again. You have to believe that the regeneration that made a new creation must uncreate it, that the old things that passed away must be reborn and the new things discarded. It, 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 it's pulling the bottom card of a house of cards out. The whole thing's going to tumble. Yes, people fall away from Christianity, even after looking like true believers. Everyone has an anecdote of somebody who followed Christ faithfully and was a missionary and did all these things for years and years and years, but now they're, they've fallen away. And some will say they lost their salvation. And some will say they never had it. That's what Jesus says. They never had it. He never knew them. If we could do a spiritual autopsy on one of these people that fell away, it would be like the spiritual autopsy done on Judas himself. Do you know the spiritual autopsy on Judas? It's commented in one of the Gospels that Judas used to steal money from the treasury. He was their treasure. He used to steal the money. You see how it was seen? It wasn't until later, not until after everything happened. And people say, do you think Judas was saved? Do you think after he committed suicide he went to heaven? No. Because if indeed he realized what he did was wrong to the point of repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ and having faith and being born again, that would be the most spectacular rebirth story of the scriptures. That would be better than Saul we get in, Acts, in the book of Acts. But we don't have that account. Why? Because he never was. He never did believe, and that's the commentary of John chapter 6. So let us hold these two obvious truths. Jesus will, will not fail to raise those given by the Father, but some who do not truly believe will always be among the disciples. And usually we can't see the difference. But keep following Jesus, even when it gets tough. This is how I can say to you, yeah, you, you, you're probably saved, you might be saved, you've got some good signs, but don't fall away. Why do I have to tell you not to fall away? Because you might not be genuine. And if you stay in the congregation, if you stay seeking Jesus, then someday we'll have the opportunity to truly believe and repent of your sins truly and, and to be born again. And that's why we tell people, no, no, don't go away. We cannot tell who's drawn by the Father, given to the Son. We can't even tell that about ourselves. We are very complex. We have very many different needs and urges that we can confuse with spiritual compulsion. And this is why the Pentecostals will say, we know who's saved here because they speak in tongues. Yeah, so do a bunch of Hindus across the ocean. They're doing the same thing. Do you think that's the spirit of the living God who says Jesus alone saves? Or is it maybe some other spirit? Or maybe just a trick of your highly complex and broken mind. We are complex. We have different needs. The people of God, the church, we have a lot to offer. We offer help and support and friendship and community. And that can bring in a whole host of fish for the wrong reasons into the net. But when the going gets tough, when we can see the glimmer, then the assurance of salvation is when the going gets tough, the teaching of the church grinds against the culture, even invites persecution, when we face personal trials and tragedy and we persevere and we hold fast our faith in Christ, then we can be greatly encouraged that we are likely to be found in him. 
Be encouraged by the good fruit that you bear and be even more encouraged by the fact that you continue to seek Jesus and you continue to find and learn more. Seek all the more to know, to emulate, to follow Jesus. Hold fast to the fellowship of believers who can help. Put your hand to the plow without looking back, as Jesus says. Lose your life. Find it in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day. We praise you, Lord, that often by your Spirit you give us moments of clarity and moments of certainty where we experience the movement of your Spirit, your Word in such a way as we can feel assured that we know you. But we praise you also even for the times of doubt and the difficulties we face and the temptations we have to turn away and to give up. For in those times, we see you work and act through your people and through your word and through your spirit to draw us anew unto yourself to hold us fast. We thank you for that ministry, Lord. We thank you indeed for ministering to us. This day, Lord, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us to hold fast to our confession of faith, to seek all the more, to know you more, and to diligently pursue you in the scriptures and with our works and our deeds and our care for one another. And may it be seen in us, the love that we have for one another and the love and zealous for the zealous and great truth that you have. May it be seen in us and accounted to the glory of God and the credit of Christ. May we be a light in our community by sharing these great truths and proclaiming the certainty of what Jesus offers. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please stand. We've got another hymn.